0: Please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7. Yes, Mark 7. We finally got out of Mark 6. I know we were in it for a while, but we're going to look at the first 23 verses, actually, of Mark 7. So, give ear to God's Word. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he called all foods clean, and said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, and from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we could gather here this morning. Lord, we need to hear your word today. We, we pray that you would speak clearly to us. And Lord, I pray uh, more than anything that I would not get in the way, but that your spirit, Lord, would work in our hearts to, to hear and to receive these things, to be encouraged by the work that you are doing in the lives of your people. And God, even to see the work that you are doing in the hearts of those who do not believe in you as well. Lord, I pray for the person who's maybe listening today and does not believe in the Lord Jesus, that he would have or she would have her eyes open to see clearly the wonderful work that you are doing uh, in this world today. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. So one of the things I like is memes. You know, you see them on Facebook or the internet or or whatever, right? And have you seen those memes uh, that say something like this? What I look like, that's one picture, and then the other picture is what others see, right? So, you know, what I look like might show some person running down the beach very swiftly with the wind blowing in them and the hairs blowing back. And they look like, you know, a movie star off of some show or something like that. And then the other caption is what people see, which is a toddler running, jerking from side to side. You know, sort of that kind of, of, of idea, Well, the reality is, is that what we think of ourselves and our heads and inside of us is not always what we really are like on the outside, right? That's just fact of life, okay? But the opposite is always also true. What we appear to be on the outside is not always what we're like on the inside, And, uh, you know, I think that's why people are so good at appearances these days, or at least they try to be that way. Oftentimes people try to sort of create a persona about themselves. And that might be on social media, but I would suggest to you it's not only on social media, it's in person. You know, people are trying to be somebody, maybe other than who they are. And part of the reason for that might be that no matter how much we've heard this growing up, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, the reality is that's exactly what we do, right, with people. We judge them based on what we see, based on the appearance. You know, we, we live in a world where appearance can be everything, where people are judged by the clothes they wear, or the car they drive, or or the way they keep themselves, or the way they speak, or the way they act. And society so tells us that outward external appearance is very, very, very important. Now, having said that, At the same time, it's that same society that can also oftentimes expose a fake as well. And you've probably met people like that. Maybe people that you thought were rich or that they were famous or smart or, you know, they just gave some appearance that they were somebody important. But as you got to know them more carefully, you realize that's not at all the case. Or maybe it was someone that you met that you thought was very caring and loving and concerned And so you opened up to that person and you sort of shared the the deepest secrets of your heart only to find out later they weren't so caring. They were just a kind of person that sort of gave that persona so that they can manipulate other people and hurt them. And so there's all kinds of different ways that we see that manifested. Well, this is the issue that Jesus is really dealing with from a religious perspective in our passage today. Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees and scribes who, in the name of religion outwardly, they alter everything they do. The Pharisees were always looking at the angle. They always wanted to appear a certain way. Their outward actions had the appearance of godliness, but there was no true inward godliness. Instead, there was a hardness of heart, as Jesus oftentimes said. And so Jesus condemns this as hypocrisy and and says that it's worthless you see i like the way one person put it they said right behavior okay our right behavior even if it's in conformity to god's laws is meaningless if there's not an underlying change of heart right behavior even if it's in conformity to god's laws is meaningless if there is not an underlying change of heart And that's what Jesus was confronting these Pharisees with, uh, as he quotes from the prophet Isaiah in verse 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And as we think about Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees, we recognize that this is a lesson for the disciples as well. Because if you remember back in chapter 6, verse 52, the disciples still had a hardness of heart, we saw. Uh, matter of fact, their hearts were so hard, they couldn't recognize the miracles that Jesus were doing. They were astonished that Jesus did these things because they just couldn't understand. And so this is not just a lesson for the Pharisees, but also for the disciples. And if it's for the disciples as well, it's for each one of us today, um, as we need to think about the difference between our outward appearance, our, our actions, our persona, and the true internal change So let's begin by looking at this text this morning and and the complaint raised by the Pharisees in this passage. They had a a complaint against Jesus, but Jesus also uh, realized that the Pharisees had a problem. And so the first point I want us to see is that Jesus uh, or the problem is confronted by Jesus in verses one through five. He confronts the problem of the Pharisees in verses one through five. We see uh, this complaint that the Pharisees have in verse 2 and verse 5. In, in verse 2, the Pharisees notice that some of Jesus' disciples were eating bread with unwashed hands. Now, to the Pharisees, this was seen as a violation of their Pharisaical laws, okay? And so, in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes confront Jesus about the behavior of his disciples because they recognize that if his disciples aren't doing it, that's because he was a bad teacher, right? So he has to take responsibility for this. And so they charged Jesus with allowing his disciples to violate the tradition of the elders. Now, I want you to notice, and you got to give the Pharisees credit. We always see them as the bad guys, okay? So we got to give them credit wherever we can, right? And you've got to recognize that the Pharisees do acknowledge that They are talking about the tradition of the elders and not the written commandments of God. They are making that distinction themselves. However, by calling it the tradition of the elders, they are giving it weight. They are saying that this is substantial and we should uh, recognize this. Because you see, the Pharisees not only held to the written law of God that was given to Moses by God, but also to the oral tradition, the Mishnah, that was given, sort of the, the commentary on the law. And they believed that when God gave the law to Moses, that he also gave them the oral law as well, the commentary to sort of go along with it and to explain what they were to do. So to for them, this tradition of elders was something authoritative. It, it carried some weight. It wasn't equal with God's law, but it carried some weight. I don't know if it's a fair comparison or not, but, you know, maybe you could compare the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms with that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Don't want to press that that too far. But uh, anyway, and, and and what the Pharisees were specifically complaining about here was the tradition of ritual purity. That is, that of washing. And Mark tells us a little bit about that in verses 3 through 4. Now, the nice thing about Mark is he's he's writing to Gentiles. So he's like... Okay, you Gentiles don't understand all this Jewish stuff, so let me explain it. So, so he does. And Mark gives us a snapshot of the extreme nature of their ritual purity. They'd wash everything, their cups, their pitchers, their copper vessels, even their couches. You know, you name it, they washed it. If it wasn't nailed down, they washed it. So they had a lot of regulations about ritual purity. And and certainly there was some biblical basis in the Old Testament for a ceremonial cleanness. I mean, we we read all kinds of different passages, but but they were taking this beyond what the law of God says. There was nothing in Scripture that really laid out what their practice was. Uh, For example, with the washing of hands, yes, it's a good idea, right, kids, to wash your hands before you eat. I mean, we're actually... Covid, If it didn't teach us anything, it taught us we need to wash our hands, right? And make sure that uh, the germs were there. But that's not what the Pharisees were concerned about. They weren't concerned about health. This wasn't a a health thing. This is really more of a a ritual cleanness uh, before God, okay? So uh, it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. But the Pharisees were basically enforcing certain biblical commands but they were really, actually, commands for the priests to wash their hands before they did their duty in the temple, before they went in and served the Lord. In places like Exodus 30:19, 40:13, you know, they laid out these prescriptions of what the priests were to do. And then the Pharisees took that and they enforced that on everybody else, you know, in the general populace, in sort of broader context. And so it's sort of like, if it's good for the priest, then it's good for you, right? And so that's what they were expecting. But by doing this, they were actually, they missed the real intention of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament to point to our internal need of cleansing and purity. And so they would add rules upon rules, okay? Uh, is what they were doing, even though God had not commanded this. So, kids, let me give you an illustration. Let's say you have a red sheet of paper, Okay, and on that red sheet of paper, you write the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. Okay, and that's God's law that's to be written on our hearts. Okay, that red sheet of paper. But then you say, what does it mean to honor your father and your mother? Well, it means to clean your room when they tell you to. So you write that on a white sheet of paper and you put it on top of the red sheet of paper. And you say, it also means not to fight with your brothers and sisters. So write that out. And you put that on top of the red sheet of paper. And then they say, okay, maybe one of the ways you honor your father and mother is they tell you not to come out of your bedroom before 7.30 in the morning because they don't want you to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to wake them up. So 7.30 in the morning, you put that on top of the red sheet of paper. What happens after a while, kids? You don't even see the red sheet of paper because there's all these white sheets of paper that are put on top of it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were adding... These uh, these rules on top of what God's law says. And so Jesus confronts this problem and he wants them to see what it is. But second of all, then we see the problem condemned. Jesus condemns their, their practice in verses six through 14. So how does Jesus respond to these Pharisees and specifically the charge that his disciples are not washing their hands? Well, first of all, he charged them with adding to the law. Uh, not only would they add up rules on top of rules, but they added to God's law, okay? It's really what they were doing. If you look at the second half of verse 7, he applies the words of the prophet Isaiah to him, and he basically says that the Pharisees and scribes were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, you're taking the commandments of men and you're teaching them as if they were God's word uh, and proclaiming them as authoritative. They were putting them on equal level with the rest of God's word. That would be like if we took the Westminster Confession of Faith and said, this is equal to the word of God. We believe it summarizes the word of God, but it's not equal with the word of God. It's not authoritative in that way. But they were saying, this is authoritative in that way. And that's why Jesus says in verse 8 to these laws, uh, says of these laws that they were the traditions of men. Now, notice that he doesn't give them any undue compliments. He does not call them the tradition of the elders, but the tradition of men. And then in verse 9, he refers to them as your traditions. So, Jesus isn't giving them the, the, the authority that they're wanting in these things. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that these are not God's laws. These are not some time-honored traditions of the saints and how to rightly understand and apply God's laws. Uh, These are a perversion of God's laws made up by men. And so Jesus' critique of those laws then goes even a step further. He basically says that they're effectively trying to replace God's laws with man-made ones. Now think about that just a minute. They want to replace God's law with man-made laws or rules. Now it's bad enough to add to God's law or his revelation. And we we see in the Bible where it clearly says, do not add or subtract from from the word of God. But but they're doing something even worse. They're wanting to replace God's law with their own man-made ideas. And that's what Jesus says in verse 8. He's saying that they are laying aside the commandment of God for the sake of the tradition of men. And so the disciples... Uh, Or, excuse me. And so the Pharisees' regulations on ritual purity actually serve to displace or get rid of God's laws, not to protect them. You see, originally they put those white sheets of paper, kids, on top of the other paper because they're like, well, you know, I just, I want to explain what this means. But also, if I put these other rules here, then it's like putting a fence around something. Then I'm not even going to let you get close enough to actually violate. The, the right thing. And so they think that's what they're doing. They're protecting God's law. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, what you're doing is you're doing away with God's law. And that's because their added laws uh, miss the point of God's ceremonial laws of ma- and making them hypocrites. So then Jesus gives them an example of what that looks like. Okay? He takes uh, an example in verses 10 through 13. And first of all, before Jesus addresses their life, he just lays out what Scripture says. And he quotes two commandments of God in verse 10. First of all, he quotes the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. But then he also, uh, he refers to a related law about not cursing your parents from Exodus twenty one seventeen, 17. Um, because the, um, if you cursed your parents in the Old Testament, you were to be taken out and stoned, which shows you the seriousness of not honoring your father and your mother. So... Jesus then refers to the practice by the Pharisees that pretty much allowed them to completely cancel or to ignore the law of honoring your father and your mother. And we see it in verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Okay, now that that word Corban there in Hebrew is the word for offering. So it's an offering to God. And basically what the, pra- what the practice of the Pharisees was this. <clears throat> that someone could formally take the honor that was due to their parents and transfer it to God as an offering. But what the Pharisees were really doing is they were providing a way for people in the name of appearing to be more godly because they were giving the offering to God was to break God's law. Now, let me explain how Corbin worked, okay? It's much like today. If you want, you can give to the church in deferred giving, right? I can take everything that I have, my money, my possessions, everything, and I can say, I want to give it to Kirk of the Plains when I die. And so I have documents written up that says that. Now, in the meantime, I can use that, that money and that property, and I can do with it whatever I want, but the day I die then everything gets turned over to Kirk of the Plains. Well, they had sort of the same thing there, where it would all go to the temple, which actually meant the Pharisees oftentimes got it. But, you know, they, it would all be turned over to them. But what would happen is, there may be a situation maybe where their, their parents, the person who decides to give this deferred giving to the temple, uh, has parents who are getting older, and they have needs, financial needs. And they come to their kids and they're like, hey, can you help me out? And they're like, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I can't. I got all this material stuff and I can use it myself, but I just can't give it to anybody else because it belongs to the Lord. And so what they would end up doing is dishonoring their father and their mother. And, um uh, and... Yeah, they would dishonor their their father and mother because they wouldn't help them all in the name of giving thanks to the Lord. Kids, it'd be like this. Take the red piece of paper. You got all those white sheets of paper, right? And one of those white sheets of paper says what? Don't come out of your bedroom before 7.30 in the morning, right? So your mom comes to you and she says, Honey, I want you to get up at 7 o'clock and I want you to come down and I want you to help me to set the table for breakfast because tomorrow we actually have to get an earlier start And I need some help. And I want you to come down and help me set breakfast. And you say to her, you better not say this to her, but you know, (laughs) let's just say for the sake of the example, you say to her, I'm sorry, mom, I can't do that. You said not to get up before 7.30 in the morning. Okay, is that honoring your mother? No, not at all. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were taking those walls that they had, that they had made up, And they were keeping those, but actually denying God's law. And that shows us really where their hearts were, and oftentimes where people's hearts are. And Jesus says in verse 13 that this makes the word of God of no effect through their tradition. In other words, Jesus shows us with this example how their hypocrisy actually does away with God's word instead of protecting it. Okay? Okay. And we need to keep that in mind because sometimes you look at legalists and you think, well, they are—they do have a, a, an eye towards wanting to protect, you know, the things of God, but not really because it ends up replacing the things of God. Now, I want to say one, I'll give you a parenthesis here if I could because I think in our country, probably legalism is not as much the struggle in America. It might be people who probably go more towards license, people who are more like, I'm not bound by rules, you know, You can come to our church, we're not so formal, we're just sort of laid back, we just sort of relax, our worship is whatever, our programs are like this, whatever, and oftentimes it is sort of doing away with the rules. And they sort of feel like they're okay, because they look at the legalists and they see the Bible condemning legalism, and they think, well, I'm not that. But what you don't understand is, is, if you think about it, if you look at the Bible, you find out really that legalism and license are the same thing, okay, in many ways. They both do what they want to do instead of what God wants to do. And so it doesn't matter which ditch you want to fall into, the sin is both the same. So just keep that in mind as you go through this. If you're like, well, I'm not a legalistic person. Well, actually, you probably are, at least in the sense of wanting to do what you want to do, which is what the the Pharisees were struggling with. And and of course, this is just one example that, that Christ gives, and it's terrible. But brothers and sisters, we need to be careful as as we approach our Christian life and as we think about the things. Sometimes we can, you know, think, well, you know, I go to church, I'm there every, I'm faithfully there. You know, I look around and I notice that there's some people that are only there like three out of the four Sundays, but I'm there every Sunday. You know, even when there was a fifth Sunday, I'm there at church. And so we think better of ourselves or we look around and we say, you know, well, I go to not only worship and Sunday school, but I go to midweek worship too, or go to midweek study as well and so you know maybe I'm more religious and so there's all these ways that we can look at our external practices and we can feel way better about ourselves or we can compare ourselves with other people but we're really not examining our hearts and the reality is we can be very wicked even in our arrogance of our external practice or you know i use a reformation study bible i don't use you know the new king james or whatever you know somebody else uses and so we can we can think these things or i tithe or whatever the problem is so anyway you see christ he first of all takes the problem and he confronts it and then he condemns it but then finally i want us to see he clarifies it he tells us exactly why this is a a, a problem what's what's wrong with with the pharisaical perspective of religion in verses 14 through 23. After responding to the Pharisees, he calls a multitude to himself of people, and he gives them a short parable in verse 15. He said, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, clearly Jesus still has in mind this discussion that he's been having with the Pharisees. Okay, now he's carrying this over and he's sharing it with the crowd. And Jesus says, it's, it's not what goes in, but it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And, and we have the benefit, praise the Lord. I love the disciples because I can learn so much more about what Jesus meant. You know, Because they're like, I don't get it. And he's like, okay, let me explain it. So in verse 18, he explains it. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Actually, what you don't realize is by reading the ESV is they left out a word there. It should be, it is, and is expelled out into the toilet. Okay, if you look at your margins, you'll probably see that, the toilet. They just sort of left that out. Maybe they were trying to be socially acceptable. I don't know why. But anyway, they left it out. So Jesus sort of gives this lesson on ingestion, digestion, and elimination. How things sort of work, you know, anatomically through our bodies, right? How things move. But that's not his purpose. He goes on in verse 20, and he explains what he's trying to get at. He says, you see, what's the source of your depravity? What defiles you? Is our sin and our depravity something that flows into us from the outside? He says, no, it's actually something within us that flows out of us. And according to Jesus, it starts within us. So so sin is not the result of our environment, but of the evil in our own heart. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what the world says, right? What's wrong with our world? Talk to our politicians. Talk to the person on the street. What are they going to tell you? We need more education. We need to, to you know make it where every race has equal opportunities and you know and you just go down the list of all the things. But everything is external. The problem is that there's something outside of me that has caused that problem inside of me. And actually the testimony of Scripture is that after the fall of man humans are sinful, fallen and depraved, that we have black hearts full of sin and depravity. <clears throat> That's what Jeremiah meant when he said in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart of the deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we, we call this, obviously, sinful nature. Without Christ, we are prone to sin and rebellion against God. And, and if our sinful natures are allowed to continue without any intervention, they ultimately result in eternal damnation and hell. For our rebellion against God. So you see our real problem as human beings is that we need new hearts. And until we get new heart, we will continue to live in sin without real genuine remorse. And and so you see Jesus listing in verses 21 through 22 these different sins. Uh, he, he says that it's not the sins themselves, the outward actions that are the source of our defilement. No, they are the symptoms of the problem. They are like smoke and fire, right? If you're going to put out a fire, what do you aim for? You don't aim to throw water on the smoke, do you? No. And he's saying the same thing. Here, if you're going to deal with this, you don't deal with the symptom. You don't deal with the smoke. You deal with the fire. That's really what the problem is. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about how we live he clearly cares about sin i mean he lists specifically these sins that that are in here and i want us just to look at this list of sins very quickly okay that he gives in verse 21 he, he obviously cares about godliness and identifies some of the most common sins of people here he first of all starts out with evil thoughts and and surely that's probably where many of the outward expressions of our sins start with right It's in our hearts in our minds as we as we consider And and we ponder these things. We conceive of the evil in our hearts and minds, and then we execute it. Jesus also then mentions some sexual sins here. Adultery, fornication. Adultery, of course, being breaking the marriage covenant, having sexual relations with someone else's spouse. Whereas fornication, the the word there is pornea in the Greek. It's a much more general word. It refers really to any sort of unlawful sexual relations. And you could look at various biblical passages to see the kind of things that they talk about, whether it's dealing with incest or prostitution or homosexuality or polygamy or bestiality or, you know, in our day, pornography. You know, it's just all these things are embodied in that word pornea that he says here. He also talks about murder or the unjust taking of, of life. He mentions theft or stealing, which is... Closely related to coveting, which he also mentions. And coveting is in a sense sort of stealing in your mind. You're wishing you had what somebody else had because you're not content with what the Lord has given to you. He mentions wickedness, which is a very general term for all sorts of evil acts. He mentions deceit, which is basically describing the character of someone who regularly lies to you or just seeks to deceive you. He mentions sensuality, which is a general word dealing with basically a lack of self-control in our lives that displays itself by running to fulfill whatever sort of perverse desires or lusts we may have. So, you know, you think about people who struggle with materialism and they're just buying things, even sometimes to the extent of being hoarders and stuff like that. That would fall under this idea of, of sensuality. You know, just fulfilling our desires, never being satisfied. He mentions envy, which is a close cousin to covetousness. Slander here refers to speaking against someone, um, speaking out against someone. And this is where we have to be careful with some of these sins. Because I, I, I've heard Christians say before in the past, well, I'm not slandering. Because what I'm saying is true. They really are a jerk. You know, or they really are like this or they're like that. Well, you know, I don't care if you are speaking the truth. It's still slander. If you're speaking against someone. So, you know, this is stuff to remember, especially as we're thinking about social media, you know, or, or, or maybe we're just one of these people, we just say, well, I'm just blunt. I just like to say it the way it is. Well, it could be sin if you're slandering against them, even if it's true. Uh, pride, which is exalting ourselves and giving ourselves undue honor. Foolishness. It's a sort of folly we see in Proverbs where you know, the heart says that there is no God and, and you live according to that. You you exalt the, the the reasoning and the logic and the thinking of men rather than God. So those, that's just sort of a quick summary of these sins that Jesus mentions. And Jesus obviously identifies these sins. And, and I walk through these sins because I want to make clear that Jesus doesn't want us to be practicing these. Jesus doesn't want us to be... Um, doesn't want these things to be flowing out of us you know but the solution is not merely to try to change our behavior or to to try to somehow adapt better habits of dealing with these things in our lives. the solution is not just an external behavioral change you know because the reality is even if we could stop doing these things in our lives and we could have those good habits uh, we would still fall short of god's glory and, and the reason I say that is because our hearts would still be defiled and impure. You know, so we have to, first of all, deal with our hearts. Now, brothers and sisters, I, as, as I listen to this and I talk about a new heart, I want you to hear me because I think it's so easy to think, well, I'm a Christian, I have a new heart. But the reality is we have the remnant of the flesh that lives in us. And, and it doesn't mean that we haven't been given a, a new heart in Jesus Christ. But do you ever find yourself loving your sin too much? Do you ever find yourself not really shying away from the flesh that's there, but actually maybe even pursuing to satisfy that flesh? You see, we have to see the blackness of our hearts and to find that really any good that we see in us only is because of Jesus Christ and, and to recognize that. You know, the fundamental solution is not outward behavioral change, but a spiritual heart transplant. That's what we need. We need new hearts. And if our hearts are, if our hearts are changed, then the behavior will follow. And so that means that we need Jesus' grace. We need his grace, which comes in the form of a gift, the gift of a new heart. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, He now offers us a new heart and a new life. He regenerates us by His Holy Spirit. He takes away our hard hearts and He gives us a new one. He turns us from being dead in sin and makes us alive in Him. And He makes us into a new creation. He made us to be born again. And that's what we need is that spiritual regeneration. We need a spiritual heart transplant. And that is the work that Jesus gives. Praise God. And if you are here this morning and you are listening to me and you're thinking, oh, Pastor Rick, but I'm so bad. I would say, yes, you are bad. And I am bad. And every person who's hearing my voice is bad. But God is great. And he he doesn't just take your bad and try to make it better. He gives you all new. He gives you a total replacement. And makes you new in Christ. You see, when, when we look at the Old Testament and see the ceremonial laws of cleanness, we see in our passage two ways of response. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they took the ceremonial laws of cleanness in the Old Testament and they made outward ritual purity an end in itself. In other words, they were focusing on trying to be clean and trying to be pure. They worked as hard as they could to try to, uh, to, to be that way. But they couldn't because the problem was their heart. And so they would fake it. They would give that persona that they were more godly than what they had. And so they would focus even more so on the outside They come up with more and more and more rules to appear more and more and more clean. But they were defiled because they needed a clean heart. Jesus, on the other hand, understood, rightly understood the Old Testament ceremonial laws of cleanness. He understood that they were not an end of themselves, but they were to point us to our need for inner purification and cleanliness. To say, I can't do that. God, I can't. I don't care how much you command me to do. I can't do that. I need you to work in me. So, so Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament ceremonial laws of cleanliness. He came to fulfill them, brothers and sisters. He came to say, let me give you that new heart. Let me give you that new heart. He understood the intention of these laws and brought them to their final fulfillment. And that's why he and the apostles later on declared that all foods were unclean. Because once he came bringing a way to be inwardly clean, we no longer had need for mere external observances. And this is why it sort of breaks my heart sometimes when I see Christians who are practicing Old Testament dietary regulations. Okay? Because I think... Okay, you think that's so cool, but actually that was just to point us to the fact that we need to clean hearts. And Christ has done that. That's really not going to do that. And you may enjoy the diet. That's fine. Go ahead and eat that way if you want. But it's not going to do anything for you because Jesus came to give us new hearts. And so our need is not to seek to please God through external behavior, but we need new hearts. And Jesus tells us in this passage where he quotes Isaiah that's in vain to change after external behavioral changes if there's not a changed heart, first and foremost. Instead, we need to go to Jesus. We need to admit, brothers and sisters, the blackness of our heart. You know, sometimes I think our, our biggest struggle as Christians is we think we just need some help. Lord, I'll do better next time. Lord, I, I really, I'm, I'm not going to fall back into this sin again. You gotta understand. No, this is where my this is what my flesh wants, and I need a savior. I need somebody who's going to deliver me from this. I need to see the blackness of my heart and say to Jesus, "Jesus, change me. Jesus, do something. Change my desires and my will." We need to go to Jesus and look for Him to change our hearts. That's where we need to start. Because if our hearts are corrected, then guess what? Then our external behavior becomes corrected and it will follow. If our hearts are changed, then our actions will be changed. I mean, think about the example of a well, if you will. Let's just say you have a well that's diseased and you pull up a bucket of water out of that well and you treat that well. You can now drink that water, right? Because you've somehow purified it. You've given the remedy for whatever is ailing that well. Well, that's good, but that doesn't solve the problem. It's, it's just sort of the band-aid. The real solution would be to find the source of the water and treat all of that. Then whatever you pull up out of that well would be clean water that you could drink. And that's what Jesus does in our hearts. He purifies us. Stop trying to please God by external outward changes. That's the danger, I think, oftentimes in churches. You can come into a church and you see people trying to live godly lives. And you can say, well, I want to be like that. I want to be godly like that. And then you try to order your life in such a way to give the appearance of that godliness. But if you didn't address your heart in those changes, then that's just like what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon of the world of people in our society trying to dress up their outward appearance of trying to have some kind of persona to look like you're something different than what you are. But brothers and sisters, God looks at the heart. He doesn't judge a book by its cover, okay? He knows if we're faking it or we're not, right? And he wants us to be broken and realize that our actions are not good enough. And to come to him that no matter how hard we try in our own strength, we can't measure up to God's standards. And as we come to realize that, that's when we begin to realize that God is working in our hearts. That God is changing our hearts. You see, our outward godliness must come from a changed heart if it is going to mean anything. Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning and just meditate upon this word that we've heard from the Lord this morning. Oh Lord, we come to you today and we admit and just confess right up front of our sin, of, of oftentimes trying to change ourselves, of, of trying to do better, of, of trying not to give in to a particular sin. And yet, God, here we are another Sunday having committed the same sins again this week. And we ask, the Lord, for your forgiveness, not just for that sin, but for that effort that we have done. And forgive us, Lord, with trying to clean the outside of the cup without worrying about the cleanliness of the inside of the cup. And so we come to you, Lord, knowing that you are the only one that can change our hearts. And, Lord, we come to you and we ask you to do so, knowing, Lord, that we now then can walk in obedience to you. And whenever we're tempted, whenever we struggle, that you are right there and you are changing us. And you are making us anew. And that's scary to think, really, I'm just putting my, my life, my ability in, in, in God's hands. And yet, Lord, you are so faithful. So help us, God, this week as we trust you, as, as we look to you to, to change our hearts. And then walk, Lord, in that strength and that power that you give us to forsake the, the, the sins of our hearts. And uh, pray, Lord, that we would do away with trying to to be something that we're not. We would just admit who we are, but also, Lord, what we need from you. And I pray, God, that we would not just um, be honest to, to admit our weakness, but we would rejoice in your power to know that you are able to truly save us. Thank you, God, so much for this. And we pray this in your name, amen.